beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. to tell you. And you have 10 things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves. And the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. This is an interactive podcast. Each episode has a prompt and a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to your best friend, or answer on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And I've been wanting to have this conversation with my friend, Bethany Winters, for a long time now. So this feels like the perfect moment for this episode. Bethany is here not only to talk to us about breast cancer awareness and personal screenings and mammograms and all of those important things, but also about breast cancer survivorship. And this is not something that I hear as much about, this side of the story. About one in eight women, around 13%, will develop invasive breast cancer in their lifetime. And for women in the U.S., this is the most commonly diagnosed type of cancer, However, death rates and diagnoses have been decreasing over the last decades, in part because of awareness campaigns that have led to earlier detection. So we really need people like Bethany sharing their stories. Also, just so you know, about 85% of breast cancers occur in women who have no family history of breast cancer. Of course, breast cancer is not limited only to women. Men can get breast cancer too. It is more rare. All of these statistics, by the way, are from breastcancer.org. I will also link to more resources in the show notes. So Bethany Winters and I met over 10 years ago 
when we were both on Twitter one day actively tweeting about some paparazzi helicopters in the sky over Hollywood. And someone who followed us both tweeted at us like, hey, y'all are tweeting the exact same thing right now. Are you standing side by side or something like that? We were not standing side by side, but it turns out we lived in the same neighborhood. So we started following one another. Eventually, we met up. Bethany, who is a stylist, took me shopping, and she started dressing Jeff and I for various red carpet events over the years. We just became friends. Bethany is a wife and a mom, and she is stylish and thoughtful. She's absolutely hilarious. I'm going to let her tell you her cancer story, but I am so honored that she is willing to share herself here with us on 10 Things to Tell You. I know that her thoughts will resonate and teach us something because odds are we all know someone or have ourselves walked this road. So here's my conversation with Bethany Winters, my friend and beautiful soul who is also a breast cancer survivor. Okay, we have been friends for a long time. A long time. Like I was trying to do the math. We met when my oldest was a baby. So like we've been friends 11 years. Yeah. Wait. She was, I went, yeah, she was like nine months. Yeah, she's about to turn 12. Hi. Yeah. So yes, it's crazy it is to crazy. me. You've had a whole person. And we met on Twitter. We did. Which is like one of my favorite stories because I hate it when people say that you can't make real friends on the internet. And I'm like... I beg to differ. Let me tell you about 50 people. A hundred percent. Twitter was really different back then, too. It was fun. Twitter was different back then, but we met because we were both tweeting about a paparazzi helicopter, and someone who followed us both like sort of said, you guys are tweeting about the same thing. You must be in the same area, and we were both at home under this paparazzi helicopter. We were. And... We realized that we lived in the same neighborhood, so then we became friends. And we were like, we should meet up. I know. I loved it. And we did. And you picked me up, and you had Oreo cookie cakes and Dr. Pepper. (laughs) Okay. Well, some things do not change. (laughs) You arrived today at my home, and I was having a Dr. Pepper. And then we went shopping. And then we went shopping because when I met you, I was Hollywood housewife, and you were LA LA stylist mom. Yep. We were. God, that was like a lifetime ago, for real. I know, but I'm proud to be like part of that generation of women on too. the internet. Same. I am too. But we've stayed friends through all of this, through all the different I know. iterations I of ourselves. I know. That's a tough gig in LA. Totally. <laughs> right? Totally. I was friends of you, of course, when you were diagnosed with cancer. I want you to share that story. And I'm right now regretting that we didn't bring Kleenex into this recording. I was just thinking about how I could probably use my dress. <laughs> okay, well, if we have to stop down, we just will. Okay. We just will. Okay. But share a little bit of your story about, well, first, before we like leap right in to your diagnosis, even though that's the like crux of what we're going to talk about today. I do want you to just say a little bit about like where you grew up, a little bit about who you are, you know, before we get to this other part. Of course. Um, Let's see. I grew up, I was born in Connecticut. I grew up in Baltimore and I moved to Los Angeles in 93 
August of 93, right before the 94 Northridge quake. I am a wardrobe stylist and creative consultant. I've been doing that, I don't know, over 20 years now, so a long time. I live in the Hollywood Hills with my two sons and my husband. I drive a lot of carpool. You know, I'm a typical L.A. mom. <laughs> you are. We are. We are. Totally. We're a cliche. Okay, so what year was it? Like, I've lost track of time. Also, 2020, the year 2020 has thrown us all off. When I try to, like, calculate years, I'm like, was that five years ago or two years ago? Because right. we have the lost year. It was a there. decade. A decade ago. <laughs> but tell me what year you were diagnosed and what led up to it. I think this is a really important story for people yeah. to share. I was diagnosed in 2016. It was March 23rd. I was watching the news because I'm an old lady and I decided to do a self-exam. I would do them either in the shower or when I was in bed, like, you know, mindlessly watching TV. I didn't do them often enough. You should do them, ladies, once a month and absolutely do them. So wait, can I just ask, if you were like doing a literal self-breast exam, yeah. you weren't just like... <laughs> No. Is this a weird question? You no. weren't just like feeling around. No. I was I was like, you know what? I need to do a self-exam. I haven't done one in a while. And you know what? Now that I think about it, I hadn't done one in a while. I wonder if subconsciously my body was telling me something. You were being prodded. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I put you, when, when you do a self-exam when you're lying down, you put your arm up over your head. And I did that. And I felt around and clockwise circular motion. And I found a lump. And it was large, and it was very hard. It was unlike anything I had ever felt before. And I think in that moment, obviously I'm not a doctor, but somehow in that moment I knew. You know, I can't speak to everyone's experience. But I knew, and I called my husband in, and I said, feel this. And I came to find out that what I was feeling was actually the top of it. It was the size of a golf ball, but it was very deep. It was on my left breast. If you're looking at my my facing me, it was at 10 o'clock. So it was deep and it wasn't in a super obvious place. And he felt it and he said, it's probably just a cyst. But somehow I knew. And when you knew, and I believe you because I just believe so deeply in the power of our own knowing. Yeah. Was it like ice cold terror or was it just like, what was it? I'm going to have to say it was ice cold terror. <laughs> To be honest, because I just was sure it wasn't wasn't anything I had ever felt before. And I knew that I had some history in my family, but it was on my paternal side. It was my paternal grandmother. And I was naive in thinking that breast cancer, cancer in general, wouldn't affect me unless it was on my maternal side, which is so far from the truth, which I came to find later. So I made an appointment with my OBGYN, and I went in, and he did an ultrasound, and he said, it looks like a cyst. And he said, but I want to send you for a diagnostic mammogram, which is, it's not like a regular mammogram. It's where it's, it's sort of a guided procedure, and you lie down on this table. I had a friend with me for no other reason except we couldn't find a time to make, to have lunch. We had been trying to find a time to have lunch. And she's like, I'll just go with you. It was Rebecca. And she came 
And we were in there. We were goofing around because I was just going to follow up and then go to lunch. And when they finished, they left us in the room together. And then they came back and she came back with the doctor. It was the doctor and the nurse who did the guided ultrasound. And the doctor looked at me and she said, this has to come out. And I thought, oh, okay. Like I still didn't, even though when I found it, I knew something was wrong. For some reason, when I got there, I thought she just meant, you know, it's a cyst. It has to come out. And then she looked at me, which is hilarious because we need some levity in the cancer world. She looked at me and she said, do you have a surgeon? <laughs> and I remember thinking, wait, I guess everyone in LA just has a surgeon. I did not. Wait, I don't have a surgeon. I mean, either. apparently, like it was, she was asking me, like, do you have a, do you have a Kleenex? She was like, do you have a surgeon? And I was like, no, I don't have a surgeon. So I came back for, I made an appointment to come back for a biopsy. But I won't say who it is because it probably wasn't, I don't want to say unethical, but my doctor called me in car when we were driving home because he and I have a very long history and he's been my doctor for 20 years. And he asked me, Bethany, are you driving? And I said, no. And he said, because I think you have cancer and so does Dr. Blank, the, the doctor who asked me if I had a surgeon. And then that's when I broke down. Were you alone in the car? No. I was with my friend. She was driving, which was why I took the call. But he probably wasn't allowed to say that because I hadn't had a biopsy yet, but it was so evident. But you know what? That I don't find that unethical at all in the context of relationship. I mean, yeah, this exactly. is why having a relationship with your primary medical caregivers is like a really good idea. And I, and I don't have, I have a relationship with my OB, but I do not have a primary care relationship. And actually, to be truthful, in the past year, I really could have used a relationship in that right. way. So right. I'm glad you shared that part yeah. of the story. Yeah. I mean, it was, and, and somehow it was easier coming from him. I was able to cry. I was able to ask all the questions I wanted. I had to tell my husband, which was horrible. This was April 4th. So this was the day that I consider my diagnosis day, even though it wasn't the day I was biopsied. wasn't like official, official. Correct. But at that point, what they saw was significant enough that the biopsy was just sort of like follow up at that point. They really, once you're diagnosed, they put you on a fast track. So I, I learned that the cancer that I had was very fast growing. I had had a mammogram that was crystal clear 11 months prior. And I was due for my regular mammogram in a month. So I had grown a tumor the size of a golf ball in 11 months. They also grade cancer. Grade one is like the lightest grade. And then grade three is the canceriest cancer. They, they kept saying high grade invasive ductal carcinoma, like it's gasoline, high grade. Are grades different than stage? Yes. A grade is, for lack of a better term, the cells, cancer cells are differentiated, poorly differentiated from, and again, I'm not a doctor. This is just what I've learned in my experience. Good thing I clarified I'm not a doctor. <laughs> cancer cells are considered poorly differentiated, meaning they are the most different cells from a healthy human cell, a non-cancer cell. And grade three is the most poorly differentiated, meaning it's like you know the high grade of cancer. That's the bad news. The good news is that once you get to chemotherapy, it makes the chemo 
that much more effective because the cells are easily identifiable mm. to the chemo because they're so different from healthy cells, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, so then then what happens? Do you have a slew of doctors that help you with a treatment plan? I actually don't know this. Yes. First, I saw the surgeon because they, they wanted to get it out. They kept saying, you just need to get it out. You need to get it out. So I saw the surgeon. Initially, my diagnosis was to do chemo up front, meaning prior to surgery, to shrink the tumor. And the tumor would get small enough that I could have a lumpectomy. Mm -hmm. What ended up happening was at that same appointment, they run, they take blood and they run a series of broad spectrum genetic testing, 17 different genetic mutations. So for example, BRCA is one in 300. Mm. I came back with a genetic mutation called RAD51C, which is one in 1400. And so that subsequently increased my chances for cervical, ovarian, and uterine cancer. So not only was it an automatic bilateral double mastectomy, it was a complete hysterectomy. So I was in the middle of chemo, so they wanted to finish chemo because when you're doing chemo, it's very important that you stay on track. I did. Wait, you mean that that full diagnosis didn't come back until you had already started chemo? Correct. Because it takes some time for the broad spectrum panel to come back. I want to say it was like two weeks or something. And they wanted to shrink it because they, you know, they're, they're erring on the side of, okay, we don't have all the information yet, so we're going to assume that she doesn't have a genetic mutation and we're going to start chemo up front. Had they known prior to starting chemo, I would have had chemo after on the back end of my surgeries. But the the bilateral mastectomy is to one was the first one was of the malignant breast. It was staged and then meaning they did them separately. The second breast was prophylactic, meaning they took it off just in case because I, I had a higher chance of developing. Wait, so you had one breast removed and then a, a different surgery for the second one? You didn't do Correct. them at the same time? No. Some doctors do. Mine opted not to. I decided to go with every cancer, even every breast cancer is different. I was a better candidate for implants. So I was doing implants. So they took my malignant breast in October and they did an immediate, they call it immediate reconstruction where they put in an alloderm sling, which replaces the muscle because they take everything. They take it from the bottom of your breast to your clavicle. Wow. And into the tissue. Correct. So I had that in October. They put in the alloderm sling and then they put in an expander, which is like a kidney shaped hard implant that has a port that they then, over time, inject saline into to stretch the muscle so it can eventually house the implant. Like a, a normal breast implant. Correct. You can tell me if you don't want to answer this, but of course do you not. have your nipples? I do. I was a candidate for skin and nipple sparing because my cancer, my cancer was invasive ductal carcinoma, which means it's just in your milk ducts, and it was stage 2B. Stage 2 references the size of the tumor, B references the fact that it had traveled into my nodes in my armpit. So I had, after my PET scan, two nodes involved. And so that shows that it has reached systemically. It's gone out of 
just the milk ducts and out of the area of the tumor into your system, into your lymphatic system. So that's where they sort of upgraded or downgraded me to 2B. And that's what chemo treats. Chemo treats your whole system. The surgeries treat the area. So yes, I was a candidate for skin and nipple sparing, meaning I have my skin and my nipples and they went in, they made the incisions under my breasts and then went in and took everything. And then you uh, live with the expanders and everything for a while and then... Correct. And I would go every two weeks and they would inject saline to stretch the muscle, which personally was was the most difficult part. Why? It was so weird, Laura. They inject it and you don't realize, or at least I didn't realize, all of your muscles are connected. So they would inject it to stretch or expand your chest muscle, but it would go all up into my neck and back was where I could feel it. Well, why do they need to expand your muscle when they're removing tissue, but they're replacing it? I mean, you had breasts. Right. The implant, and I wish that this was something that they had explained up front that nobody said to me, implants are much heavier than normal breast tissue. They're much heavier. Like, my boobs are so heavy. Let's be real. Even if even if you have a boob job, you still have some of your own breast tissue and a smaller implant. I am all implant. There's, there's nothing. So they do it so that it's more comfortable and so that it lessens your risk of infection because if the muscle isn't stretched, and a lot of people do it without expanders. So I don't want to say it's better one way or the other. But your, your incisions can open if the muscle isn't stretched. And then that could lead to infection. That could lead to subsequent surgeries. Okay. So that's why they do it staged Okay. and expanders. No, it kind of makes sense. I guess I just didn't know any of this. Yeah, actually. I didn't know any of it until I went in. Now I could do my own chart. With sunshine, outdoor activities, and so many fun things to do outside, it is impossible not to enjoy all of these good weather days up ahead. Of course, we all know that more sun and fun means more sweating, and yes, more odor. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Lumi. Lumi is the first of its kind in the full-body deodorant world and is seriously safe to use on any and every part of your body. It was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how regular body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben-free. It is also pH-balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of fresh scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice, like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code U at lumideodorant.com. That equates to 40% off your starter pack when you visit Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T, Dot com and use code U, Y-O-U. It's not every day that you find a product that you truly love and want to shout about from the rooftops. Well, friends, I have found something that I am genuinely excited to share with you today, and that is Born Shoes. 
Born shoes are made with the best top quality leather with functional stitching and flexibility. They are lightweight, but they're also supportive. They are great for all casual occasions, extremely comfortable, and especially good for travel. The brand recently gifted me a pair of the Ithaca style sandals. Of course, they are beautiful. The footbed has extra foam for added comfort and with a slight heel for lift. I am positive that I could walk all over London in this pair of shoes, just like I did in my Born sandals last summer. Born Shoes offers sandals, flats, boots, and heels in several styles and color choices. Take comfort in Born Shoes. Every season, they make high-quality shoes that feel as good as they look. With artistic touches, unparalleled craftsmanship, and exquisite materials, Born designs shoes to satisfy the demands of every lifestyle. Go to bornshoes.com for a 15% discount plus free ground shipping on all full-price shoes when you use my promo code TELL. That's born, B-O-R-N, shoes, S-H-O-E-S, dot com and use promo code TELL, T-E-L-L, for 15% off and free shipping, available exclusively to our listeners for a limited time. So what was kind of the overall timeline then, because you did your two breasts separately, you had a hysterectomy, Mm -hmm. and you also had chemo. Mm -hmm. Did you have radiation? I didn't. I was not a good candidate for radiation because of my tumor size and because of my age. I fell into a gray area. I was 47 when I was diagnosed. Okay, so what was the timeline? Still a lot of treatment, a lot of things. Yeah, it is. I, I did chemo. I did my first chemo on May 3rd. And I did my last chemo on September 13th. So I did, what is that, five months of chemo. I did four biweekly rounds, followed by 12 weekly rounds. And so then they gave me, the last one was September 13th, they gave me about a month to heal so that my body would be able to heal from the surgery. I had my initial mastectomy and immediate reconstruction on October 21st with the expander in. Then I had my second mastectomy in January, the following January, and they put another expander in. Then I had what they call, and then I would go to the plastic surgeon every two weeks for those saline fills to expand the muscle. Then in May, I had what they call the exchange surgery, where they take out the expanders and put in the implants. Then they let my body heal from that for, I want to say, eight weeks, maybe. And then I had a total hysterectomy in July. And then that doesn't even include, I had to have my port implanted, which is a surgery, at the beginning of chemo, and then my port removed. But they erred on the side of caution, so I had my port in probably for two years after I finished chemo. In case you needed to correct, start again. Yes. God, that's a long time to be in active treatment or recovery mode. It is. It is. It is. And it was it was wild because, it, I joke, because they treat your symptoms so well now with chemo. I feel like I, I say to my husband, I basically slept for five months during chemo. And then, you know, the rest of it, I've never felt, and we've talked about this, because I struggle with anxiety. And so I thought that was going to be off the charts, which at the beginning it was. But once I got into active treatment, I have never felt so calm. I was not anxious because 
all of that noise, all those things that would make me anxious, whatever I was stressed about, fell away because my focus was so singular. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So you weren't working? Did you stop working? I went into it working. I'm like, oh, I'll be fine. And then after my second chemo, so a month in, I was like, no, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. It was just too much. I mean, I did very little during chemo. And your boys were how old? They were 9 and 11 when I was diagnosed. Ah, just the age of my kids right now. Oh, my God. They they were. They were little. They were little. And your husband was able to take on kind of the lion's share of the parenting during this time? He did. Well, he did. And my mother had just retired. My mother was an attorney on the East Coast, and she had retired. And we called her and said, can you come here? Can you come here and help us with the kids? And she flew out here. She never left, but she flew out here, and she took care of my kids for a year and a half. And that left Jason the ability to really focus on caring for me. Mm-hmm. You know, she took them. She had, they had way more fun with her than they would have had with me. And he was able to keep working. He was. He, I'm sure that you maybe remember from my Instagram, I would always take a photo of him, you know, in his little suit and tie on his computer in my room at the doctor's office with like the plastic boob model. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. So he, it was a lot. Yeah, it was a lot. I'm asking because I, you know, every woman that I know that has gone through something similar, like your family life changes drastically, but you still have a family. There is still functioning things that have to be done, like care for the kids, salaries, you know, I mean, like, like family life has to exist alongside this. And so I was just like, my salary took a big hit. I'm freelance. You know, I don't work for, you know, a company where I could get unemployment or whatever it was going to look like. Mm -hmm. My husband was fortunate to keep working. And, you know, it's funny because all of that stuff, it was, it was taken care of. I mean, partially you remember you were sitting at my house once a week with barbecue. I had a meal train, and people were like, who, who brought dinner tonight? My kids got to the point where they were like, who's bringing dinner tonight? And when I would say Laura, they were like, excellent. <laughs> Your meals were a big hit. Your barbecue. Thank you. I'm so glad, to, because what I brought your family during that time was not healthy. It, that Everyone, it was, I, I don't want to sound ungrateful. That meal train was incredible. People brought meals to my house five days a week for five months. And, you know, some are better than others. But my kids and I, when you brought that poppy seed chicken, we still think about it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I should have made you poppy seed chicken today. I messed it up. I we should still- have. But, no, listen, I just was thinking, I know this isn't going to be the healthiest thing they'll eat this week, but I brought comfort food. You like, did. what you want when you're having hard times is, like, sour cream and, like, That's right. cheese. Meat. <laughs> Totally. It was amazing. It was amazing. So my point is that I've never been so humbled by a village, as cliche as that sounds. There were so many times that I said to Jason, my husband, I don't know how I can ever repay or say thank you to these people that have done this for our family. No, that's no thank you. There's a village aspect to it that, like... It's incredible. I've I've never I've tr- I've honestly never experienced anything like it before or since. That's amazing. Yeah. So, what happens at the end of all of this? Like, I don't actually know how doctors 
close this loop, if you will? Do they determine that you're cancer free? Do they like just say we keep watching it? Like what? What? How does this conclude in survivorship? That's one thing that I really wanted to talk about today because the loop is never closed. Mm. It's never closed. And and the one thing that I want to make clear is, number one, I'm healthy. Number two, I am incredibly grateful. And number three, the loop is never closed. It's just not. I was declared cancer-free after my initial mastectomy because I didn't have any more cancer in my body. There's a difference between cancer-free and remission. What that is specifically, I can't speak to, but I know that remission has something to do with the passage of time, that you've been cancer-free for a certain period of time. Once I was said and done, I still, I mean, said and done being from chemo and surgeries, I still went every three months for blood and scans. And it's not just like you roll in and it's, it's a whole day at the oncologist's office. And then there are, you know, our subsequent doctors. You know, I, I should say that part of my treatment is my cancer was estrogen receptive. So I have to take a drug called tamoxifen for the next 10 years. You know, and, and there are things going forward logistically. Like the, the number of doctor's appointments that I still have is wild to me. Years later. Oh, yeah. Like I, you know, you have to get bone scans and then I have to get these shots called prolia because tamoxifen suppresses your estrogen and estrogen feeds your bones. So now my bones are weak. So I have to get, you know, shots for that. I always say that cancer is the easy part. It's the side effects of everything that make it difficult. And we were talking before we press record and you were saying that one of the reasons that we wanted to do this episode is that you feel like, and I agree just from an outsider's point of view, around the breast cancer conversation, of course, right now is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, that there's a lot of support when you're in treatment. There's a lot of education about doing breast exams and things like that. But there is not a lot of talk around survivorship. No. And I... When you brought that up to me, I was like, well, you're right. I, I don't see much of that because really the only emotion that you're maybe allowed to say out loud is gratitude or something right. like that, which of course, of course you feel gratitude, but there is so much more to it. That it, it, Gratitude is the surface. There's a lot that has to be happening underneath. There is. And it, it's interesting that you say that no one talks about it. This is something that I said to you earlier. Even survivors don't really talk about it. We will sometimes talk about it to each other, but it's not generally something that people want to hear. I remember someone said to me when it was my last chemo, aren't you so excited? And I remember thinking, no, I'm terrified. I feel like active treatment is over. I feel like someone is pulling a safety net out from under me. I feel like I go to this place where they're actively treating me and People care for me. You know, twice a week I go here, and that's all going to be gone. I was terrified. But there, there's part of you that feels like you're not allowed to say that. You, you can only talk about, you know, how grateful you are to be here. But the reality of it is it's never over, and there's so many layers to that. Because once you have come up against your mortality in a way that isn't abstract, there's no going back from that. Mm-hmm. 
And I don't live in that space, but it's taken me, I'll be cancer-free five years on the 21st of October. I, I still grapple with it. I still grapple with it. There's always the, the piece of yourself that thinks, what if? Mm-hmm. And you were also saying earlier that when you're diagnosed with cancer, that people, other people outside of you, <laughs> react in different ways. They either run mm-hmm. towards you or they mm-hmm. run away. And I thought what you said about that was interesting. Yes. It was interesting because there were people that, as I said, that I never would have expected to show up for me that showed up consistently. And then there were people, and again, these are my own expectations, that I would have expected to show up or to show up in maybe a way that they didn't, who sort of disappeared. And what I realized, initially I took it personally and I would feel, you know, resentful or any of those you know, knee-jerk reactions to that. And then ultimately what I realized is it has nothing to do with me. When someone is sick, a lot of people can't handle that because it makes them have to think about their own mortality. And that's scary. Mm -hmm. And that was very freeing for me once I realized, you know what, not everybody can handle this. And and it's not for me to say how you should handle it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that rings true. When you were diagnosed, and you and I are not like daily friends, you know what I mean? Right. Like we're not like text daily friends and right. we weren't then either. But you did call to tell me, I remember. And I just remember that how I reacted to the news of a, a friend getting this diagnosis, we had at that time just very recently ro- lost Jeff's brother to cancer. And you never know how you're going to react in any kind of situation. But I definitely think, you know, when you go through one thing, like, it definitely affected how I took that news if we hadn't just gone through that in our own family. I think I might have been a person that might have disappeared on you, that might have ghosted you just because I would have panicked and not even known how to. You didn't, though. But I I think I didn't because our family had just gone through it. Right. Unfortunately... His death made you better equipped. I think so. I mean, that's, I hope so. It's just, it's terrible. I know everybody, I feel like has, it's, yeah, it's hard. Okay, you have, you did, you know, jot down 10 things. And I appreciate you doing this because sometimes we get into these conversations, which are amazing and beautiful, but we don't always say everything we want to say. Right. (laughs) And so I was like, so long-winded, appreciative that you said these things that, that you want to say as a survivor. And I read through them and I want to talk through every single one of them. So number one, you say survivorship is just another leg on the trip that is cancer. It's it, it's true. That's what it is. And I think that when I said that, I think that I was telling myself that what I realized. I was telling myself because I kept waiting for there to be an end. And I kept waiting to go back to the person that I was before. And listen, don't get me wrong. There, there are some ways that I'm not the person that I was before, and it's not great. But then there are a lot of things that are great surrounding who I am that came from this. Like, tell me, tell me that. What do you think has changed in a way that is great? 100% for me, I've always been a people pleaser. And I've had a really hard time setting boundaries. And when you're sole focus is to survive 
I had to learn, number one, to accept help, and number two, to prioritize myself in a way that maybe didn't make everybody happy. Mm -hmm. And that carried through even after you weren't in treatment. It did. I, I still, I have to be more conscious about it, but it was almost like once I flex that muscle. It was like muscle memory. And I was like, wait, I can do this again. I can do this. I can do this in my real life. And that was the biggest lesson for me, the biggest takeaway. Also, that I don't sweat the small stuff in the ways that I used to. Did it have that sort of like proverbial thing, not just in the moment, but in a big picture way of like, (laughs) where you think, I don't know why I'm laughing, because I've not even necessarily experienced this wholly. So I'm asking you, where Everything else seems stupid. Like, I can't even tell you. <laughs> like, there are there are some times where people are saying something to me, and I have always said, my experiences or my hardships do not negate yours. But there are some things going forward in the past five years that people are saying or that they're complaining about. Or that, and all I could think was, hmm, they cut off my boobs. <laughs> it just, it, it doesn't... It doesn't register the same way. Yeah. I feel like I get glimmers of that. I haven't felt it like on like a visceral level like you have, but like I get glimmers of that where, well, listen, you know, 2016, it was its own year, right. if you will. I mean, yes. And it then, was. you know, we li- all lived through 2020. And like there's a lot of things where it's easy to get like wrapped up in this like sort of the craziness of the world, which is legitimate. And then the minutia and like what, you know, I can sometimes myself spin out and I have to have a moment of like, is this all stupid? Right. Right. Like, what really matters here, you know? Right. Yeah. And again, that's a very, you know, how we decide to quantify that is very personal. But that definitely shifted for me after this experience. Totally. I'm sure. Your number two for 10 things that you want us to know about survivorship is, and we've talked a little bit about this, but for many of us, cancer isn't over with the culmination of treatment, being declared cancer-free or being in remission. And I feel like we talked a little bit about that, but it does go with your number one thing also because it's never really over. It's like a really hard thing for me to swallow. And I'm me. I'm not even you, you know? I mean, you know, it's, that's, that seems big. It is. It's, it's definitely big. One, one of those things I think is I mean, a lot of it is, you know, logistical, how you view things, your perspective. But a big one is emotional processing. And I heard this from survivors prior to getting to this point. And I I was telling you earlier that when you are in active treatment, you're so focused on surviving that a lot of the time, and this was true for me, you don't have time to process what's happening to you emotionally. And that blowback can often come once years later, once treatment is over, once you are cancer free. And that happened to me. I have a friend who's also a survivor and she was telling me, I remember one day she was crying and she was like, you know, it's hard to process during, you're going to go through it. And I remember thinking, oh, I've processed it. No, I was wrong. So that came later. I mean, I'm currently, I'm five years later, I'm still doing, I'm a huge proponent of therapy. I always have been. But I'm specifically now doing trauma therapy because I had some anxiety, some specific PTSD that was cancer-related that I didn't even think was cancer-related. It ended up being Mm cancer-related. 
So, you know, I'm still working through that. And there, there's something to be said for that little person, that little version of yourself that sits on your shoulder and waits for the other shoe to drop. Mm-hmm. That would be really hard. It is. And again, I don't live in that space. But I have to visit it because for a lot of people, that's their reality. For me, that could potentially be my reality. It's not right now. And hopefully it will never be, but it's something that exists. And I've just sort of had to make peace with it and coexist alongside of it. How do you talk about that with your kids who are older now? And when your kids, you know, maybe you can just be like, okay, mom's better. Cancer's out of sight, out of mind, you know, whatever. Do you talk openly with your kids that like, it's not over, if you will? Or do you let them live in an innocence? I feel like we have discussed recurrence because my chances for recurrence are higher as a result of my genetic mutation. So we have talked about it. You know, I've always been honest with them. When I was first diagnosed, of course, initially the the thing that they asked me was, are you going to die? And I remember I said, yes, one day but probably not from this. So we talk about it, but it's interesting. We don't we don't talk about it. It it was such a for me it was so huge and for them it was such a blip on their radar. They were with their grandmother and you know running around and I was fine and and I'm grateful for that. Mm-hmm. I'm really grateful for that. However, there is a little part of the back of their minds too when I'm leaving to go somewhere. They'll say where are you going and I'll say doctor's appointment and they'll say, "Oh, for what?" You know, whereas before, that wouldn't have been a question. And then I went for scans. This was actually a couple months ago. And my younger son said to me, oh, are you going for scans? And I looked at him and I said, how do you know? And he said, you have on your easy access dress. You know, because you have to change and you can't wear anything metal. And so they pick up on that. I think that whether or not we talk about it regularly, they're, it's sort of ingrained in them now that they're actively aware that... Life is fragile Mm -hmm. in that way, especially for our family Mm -hmm. and many families. I mean, this is not singular to me and my family, which is why I'm doing this. Y'all know that I love to play games on my phone to unwind, and I am always looking for a new one to download. And I recently ran across Two Dots, and I want to tell you about it. Two Dots is a free-to-download, puzzle-based game that involves connecting dots through relaxing puzzles while unlocking levels and collecting prizes along the way. There are different gameplay modes to make the experience unique and exciting with every single puzzle. There are over 5,000 distinct puzzles with various power-ups and special dots ready to earn as you move through the levels. The in-app music and visually stimulating interface provide a soothing experience when you just want to relax and unwind. Not only is Two Dots free to download, but it can also be played without internet connection. So playing on the go offline is a breeze. And if you don't want to play alone, you can challenge your friends on Facebook, as well as connect with the larger Two Dots community for even more engagement. If you're looking for the perfect game to help you relax, but also keep you engaged, download Two Dots for free on Android and iOS. Wasn't so aware of the fragility of life, which I know sounds naive. And there's a positive aspect to that, but there's also a negative aspect to that. And listen, I'll be frank. The the reason that I started going to trauma therapy was when you have PTSD from a major illness, 
or from anything that is traumatic, it attaches in other places. And I was having panic attacks specifically on the freeway. It was attaching to driving. Interesting. Yeah. And I would get in my car and I would, you know, just driving from my house to my kid's school. You know how far that is. That's 10 minutes. And I would have to literally talk myself down and breathe through it. Like I would picture, I could picture the accident happening in my head. And that's when I went, okay, this is, and and it was after some time where I went, this is not manageable. This is not normal. This is not manageable. This is about something else. So, Mm. you know, like every time my husband leaves the house, I'll say to him, drive safe, text me when you get there. You know, I'm, I'm more, and I think a lot of people are like that, but it's a, it's a perpetual feeling in the background, sort of like the background static of what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. It's like a pervasive. And so that's what I'm, I'm actively working on. And driving and car accidents feel like a thing that happens, you know, and also like a tangible thing where us cancer, it feels intangible. Right. Oh, that's hard. And I never even associated it until I talked to a friend of a friend. She has the exact same thing. Her treatment, she went through treatment at the same time as I did, and hers also attached to driving. That is so interesting. It is. I had no idea. I just thought, you know what? I'm old and panicky, and what's happening? (laughs) Wow, yeah. I'm going to think about that one for sure. Number four, I really want to hear what you have to say about this. Your number four is... Our baseline for getting out of bed in the morning is different from yours. I think for my situation, and again, I'm one of the lucky ones, you know, and I, I, I know that, but I have side effects from the medications that I take and my immune system is not great. I get sick a lot. People say, you get sick all the time. You know, are you taking elderberry or whatever? And it's almost like I feel... I almost feel like personally attacked. Like, okay, my immune system sucks. I didn't have a great immune system to start with, but it just, like, I I get a lot of colds. The side effects of the tamoxifen I take are fatigue, joint pain. Then I have to take supplements to, you know, fight that. There's There's something actually called pill fatigue where people stop taking their medication because they have to take so many pills physically every day that they're just over it. I'm pretty good about it because I know it's, you know, going to decrease my chances for recurrence, but I'm tired. I'm tired a lot. I get a lot of headaches. I'm achy. Mm -hmm. I get shots twice a year that put me down for the better part of a week, you know, that take me out of my own life. And I know, you know, again, a lot of people have issues, but I think that that's part of the belief that once it's over, it's over. Like physically, I don't feel like the same person, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and even to, even to speak to that, there's there's a societal definition of what is beautiful, you know, and when you go through cancer, even though I've had reconstruction and my hair's back, you know, when you're when you're in treatment, you lose everything that society deems beautiful as far as femininity goes. I lost my hair. I lost my breasts. I lost my reproductive system. Mm hmm. I mean, just from like the most surface level, to me, you look the same. I mean, I remember when you lost your hair and everything, but like now, yeah. now that we're here, like I would not, 
you are not any less beautiful. And that's not in that's not me like that brings me joy. No, that's Thank you. true. Like I if I, you know, if we had gone to a 10 year reunion and I didn't know what had happened in the last 10 years for you, I right. would not know. Thank you. And I don't know if any if you know that. Like I'm like truly telling you that. I know. You would think you've never told me anything that you didn't think. Yeah, that's, that's why and that's why you know, I value your opinion. You're always honest. But do you feel like you look different? Yeah, but I think it has more to do, number one, with aging. But also, Tamoxifen makes it really hard to lose weight. I definitely, I definitely carry extra weight. You know, because chemo puts you into menopause. So I thought I was done after chemo. And then my hormones dropped like it was bananas after my hysterectomy. You know, so I've been in menopause now. I mean, I've been finished menopause for years, and I'm I'm 53 years old. I wasn't probably supposed to go into menopause until 51, according to my doctor, but I've been done. And I think that part of not feeling like I look my best has to do with how tired and achy I sometimes feel. Also, we're terrible judges of what we actually look like. And I've talked about this on the show before of like, I can look back at times in my life when I wasn't doing well, like some postpartum times and whatever. And to me, uh, that picture, I can see it in a photograph of myself. I can see in my eyes or Mm. I I, like my cells remember what a hard time I was going through. And so I see it in the picture of like, I look terrible here or that doesn't look like me or, oh, what a terrible time that was or or whatever I'm reacting to, the Laura in that photograph. Whereas like, if you saw that picture, you'd be like, that's what you looked like in 2013. But you know how you felt. Yes. And so that's what I'm saying. We do not, we, we are terrible judges of what we actually just surface look like because we have all these feelings. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if that's good or bad news because that's, I don't either. (laughs) I guess I'm good or bad. I don't know. It's very hard. It's very hard to I just, separate. I don't think it's good or bad. I think it's just accurate. Yeah. But I, I, I do want people to hear that no matter what, that how you look in the mirror or how you look in the picture, it's, we, we all have dysmorphia. I would have to agree. Our bodies of, of our attractiveness or unattractiveness. Like yeah. it's all, it's not, we are not objective. At all. At all. Yes. Totally. Number five, we've definitely talked about, but I'm going to read it because I'm, I'm going to post all of these because they're so good and important. Number five is we are often dealing with side effects from ongoing medications, treatments, and surgeries, even though we are in remission, which we just talked about. Right. But that's so important to note and to think about your loved ones or yourself. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's true. Like, I had to do physical therapy. <laughs> this is funny. I had to do physical therapy after my surgery to strengthen my core because I had been you know, in bed and in chemo for so long that my core was not strong enough to hold up my new boobs. (laughs) I was having like this horrible pinched neck pain. And of course I'm thinking, oh, spinal metastases, your brain goes to the worst place. And my oncologist looked at me and said, I think you need to strengthen your core because your new boobs are heavy. And that's what's causing your neck pain. And he was right. But that's something, you know, I had to go to physical therapy once to, to twice a week for four Mm -hmm. months plus who would know that not me no i wouldn't either not me number six is we move through the world in a different way both good and bad because our mortality is no longer abstract to us right which we've talked about and that's absolutely it's wild wild it's wild 
I can't, I can't really even describe it, what, what that's like, because it's something, I think people sometimes think about death or think about having a major traumatic episode or getting sick or what would I do if I had cancer? Or maybe that's just me and I was crazy. (laughs) But once you know what that's like, there's just, there's not a lot of coming back from that. Mm -hmm. You know, you just, you learn to live alongside that. Yeah, you can never not know. Right. Yeah. And it goes with what you say in number seven, which is it's not helpful to tell us to move on, get over it, be grateful you're alive, etc. This is something that many of us will process for the rest of our lives. I mean, not that I'm in a position to tell you anything about this, but like what is helpful for others to say to you? Or no, or should, should we not say anything? Well, you know... I think that there's a a stereotype, especially now, of a strong woman. And everybody says all the time, you're so strong. You're so strong. And I, I understand, I absolutely understand that people love me and that they mean well. But by saying that you're so strong, it's almost like they create an expectation that it's not okay to feel anything negative. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I remember at one point I was in my bedroom and I was crying and I was it was after a surgery. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, can my kids hear me? Can my kids hear me crying? I, I should calm down so they don't hear me crying. And I realized, well, you know what? I'm in pain. And that's what you do mm-hmm. when you're in pain. You cry. It wasn't like, you know, a disaster, but it's a lot of pressure to be expected to be strong and happy. And sometimes we just need to feel it. Sometimes we just need you to listen without judging. And above all, we need you to understand that we are who we are now. Not who we were before, not who you think we should be. Mm-hmm. There's, not, there's not a timeline for grief or for healing. It's also like when someone says you're so strong, and I agree with you, they mean it as a compliment, they mean it, you know, they're so well-intentioned. We, we are so well-intentioned when we say things like that. But like, the alternative to what you see as strength, if I were to fall apart right now, like, is that weakness? No. Right. That's huge. Yeah, it's like, well, what would you call weak if I were to... If I were to cry with my kids in the other room because I was in pain? If I were to have days where I was so depressed about it, I couldn't get out of bed, would you consider that weak? Right. No. And so it's just like, I know what we're doing when we say that and we want to be encouraging and supportive and we want to say, I see you and like all these things. But I can see that it's also, it can be problematic maybe. It is. And the other thing is that strength isn't necessarily always a choice. Yes. I didn't have a choice. Like I had two children at home. I had to stay alive. Like, I had to. Everyone's like, I don't know how you did it. I don't know how you got through it. Because I had to. Yeah, you're like, I don't either. I'd rather have been weak. Like, 100%. It's a lot harder to be strong. No, thanks. I'm not going to do cancer. So I'm just going to pass. You know? Like, I didn't didn't have a choice. Yeah. I'm rethinking everything I've ever said. No, not really. But I mean, you know, it is. You want to... This is good. This is such a good conversation. I love that you're having this conversation with me and that you've given me the opportunity to speak about it. Because as I said before, one of the things is people don't want to talk about it. People are tired of talking about Bethany's cancer. They're tired. 
We get it. You had cancer. No, they're not tired of Bethany's cancer, but episodes like this, and I'm just going to say this on the show, episodes like this, you know, they don't... (laughs) They don't go viral. They don't get my biggest amount of downloads, you know, for right. the month or whatever, because people see the title or they see the topic and they're like, I'm going to not press play right. on that. They're like, grim. <laughs> let, me, let me go find something lighter. You know, and right. I don't, I do not begrudge that. I absolutely understand that the choice in listening to something like this. Like, I, I completely get it. But I knew from you and I talking about it and just because I know who you are that that having these conversations publicly, it's so helpful for people to either see themselves in these kind of conversations or for people to know better what their loved one is going through. Yes. And it's worth most, it every time. A hundred percent. And most of all, what I want people to know is that you're not alone. Yes. Like, I will talk about this until I'm blue in the face. And you know what? So can you. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't you don't have to be strong. You don't have to pretend everything's okay. And you know what? For some people, it probably is. I'm going to keep reading through these 10 things that you want us to know about survivorship. Even though we've covered a lot of them, I just, I want people to hear, hear these sentences. Number eight, the idea of recurrence is always lurking in the back of our brains. The what if it's back with every ache and pain. Once you've had cancer, everything is potentially cancer. Right. Like I had over 4th of July weekend, I had a gnarly stomach bug and it, I, my stomach was killing me for like 10 days. So I called the doctor. I'm like, you know what? I've, I've had this stomach bug. I'm not vomiting anymore, but I've been in pain for over seven days. It's not just, okay, get, you know, drink some tea and get rest and have Advil or whatever it's going to be. It's okay. We need to schedule a scan. So, you know, then it's grappling with the insurance company to get a scan, even though I had, you know, cancer and all of these surgeries. And then you have to go have the injection and do it's a whole day at the imaging place. It's it's never so there there's that component of it. And again, I'm so grateful for my team and they're really on top of it. And I would rather have them do that, but it's also Stressful, stressful every time. There's a thing in the cancer world that we call scanxiety. And it's a real thing. And you go and get your scans, and that's not a big deal. But that limbo between the scan and the results mm. is full scanxiety. Even if I'm not actively thinking of it, I'll say something to my husband like, wow, I'm really bitchy today, or I'm really irritable. or And, and he'll look at me and I'll go, you're waiting for your scan results. So it just sort of creeps in and manifests in places that you wouldn't necessarily think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. So it is you have to stop down your life to to go take care of this because you can't just think a few days of rest will fix it. But then you also have the emotional part of like, well, what if this is right? And it's funny though because every time in our house, it, again, you need levity. Cancer is hilarious. In our house, I'll, I'll say something, oh, my neck hurts, and I'll just say, yeah, definitely spinal metastases <laughs> every time. And we're all like, everything is cancer, which not good. Thank God it isn't. It isn't, but I can see how you would. I mean, I, you know, those of us who haven't been sick also, like, have that what if all the time. Right. My not all the time, but maybe that's just me. <laughs> no, it, it's not. I think it's the human condition, to be really honest with you, especially given the the climate you know, 
in this country and with all with the pandemic and with all of this illness i think it really people are coming up against something and and thinking about exactly what you're describing in a way that hasn't happened collectively before right like i wonder if we can have like more uh, empathy for what you're describing or, or a little more understanding this year than if we'd had this conversation two years ago yeah. where it would have really been an abstract idea. But now we've all lived in this right. year of every cough, every, right. you know, errant, whatever feels like, am I really sick? Have I spread this? Is someone else I love really right. sick? Like this low grade fear of our own bodies. Yes. And I know it's not the, it's not in exactly the same comparison, but, it is. but it's I mean, a glimmer it's, of it. Right. It is. And it's funny, all the cancer memes are, you know, with COVID and they're like, huh, this isn't our first rodeo. Oh, that's funny. Everybody's like, oh, first timers. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's funny. Okay. Number nine, we do not always want to be strong. So stop telling us to be part of the reason we are strong is because we allow ourselves the space, time and grace to process the myriad and complicated feelings surrounding being a survivor. So we have talked about that strength thing, but I wonder if you have words to say about survivor's guilt around this. Yeah. It's funny because before ever having cancer, I, I, you know, I heard the term survivor's guilt. You knew about it. And I can remember thinking, not to diminish anyone else's experience, but I remember thinking, why would someone feel guilty about something they didn't have any control over. And then it happened to me. And again, my story is has a positive ending. You know, I have lost two people very close to me since I've been diagnosed and since my recovery, one of whom was younger than me. And, you know, like even, even we were talking about Dave and even thinking about Dave, but think why... Why him and not me? You know, why was I spared when they are gone? Mm -hmm. And that's really, that's really real. And it's very heavy. It feels bad instead of victorious. It's so funny that, that, yes, it feels bad. It definitely feels bad. And it's so funny when you said the word victorious, I thought about it for a minute and its definition. And I honestly, I don't feel there's anything really victorious in this situation because I don't feel like it's over. I mean, yes, my outcome was positive, but I also, I wouldn't, I almost feel again, guilty claiming victory because there were so many others who weren't able to. Right. Victorious is not like the right word here either, but I didn't mean like over other people. No, no, no. I meant I over the over the I cancer. Don't, yeah, I don't think that that's what you meant. I feel like there's such a, a bonding and there's such a kinship. They always say it's welcome to the best club that you never wanted to be a part of, and it's true. And I think that we are all so trauma bonded in this experience that. I, I feel that very deeply for the people who did not have the same outcome that I had, for the people that have children like I do, you know, for mm-hmm. the people who, who aren't here anymore. Yeah, it's so hard. 
you know, the, the one thing, and chemo is different for everybody. I was in a chemo room with a bunch of other people. And luckily, my OB had the foresight to say to me, I don't want you to be shocked when you get there because you're going to be there in a room with people who are dying. And had he not said that, I don't know that I even would have been cognizant of it. And so I did chemo for so long and everybody's on a schedule and, you know, there's chairs and stuff. There were people that I didn't see again. Mm, that's a toll. That also makes me think of the toll of healthcare workers. Oh, my God. You can't. You, you can't. You can't. Imagine. I can't. Every nurse I have had during and since treatment, I take the moment to look in their eyes and to say to them, you have no idea what you mean to people and what you do for people. My chemo nurse, Rose, see, this is the part where I'm going to cry. My chemo nurse, Rose, it's such an intimate process. She was everything, everything to me. I still get to see her for checkups, and it's amazing. Yeah. Talk about strength. If we want to put a strong label on anybody, it's the people who have the gifting and the talent to do this every day. It's incredible. It really is incredible. I wish I had a better word for it because it sounds trite. But those people, like I, I can remember days I would walk in and I would be like, oh, thank God Rose is here. You know, as opposed to someone else because it's just that comforting. Yeah. Yeah. Number 10, unless you've been through it, it's difficult to understand and empathize, which is frustrating and isolating for us. This is why our cancer friends are so invaluable. There is a shorthand and a camaraderie. Do you have other survivor cancer friends? I do. And you're able to text and check in? And... Always. Now, but I don't know why I'm getting emotional about this, because they understand in a way that nobody else understands. And you don't even have to talk about it. You don't even have to, you know, talk about how you feel because it's there. Mm-hmm. I have um, my best friend from college was diagnosed... I want to say three, less than three months. I want to say two months after I was. My very closest friend from college, still to this day. She's in New York. Wow. And we had almost identical treatment on opposite coasts. Wow. It's wild, isn't it? And when she called me to tell me, we've been friends, you know, since we were 18 years old. And when she called me she tell, to tell me, I picked up the phone, and she goes, hey. I'm like, hey. She, she was cracking up. I go, what? She goes, guess what? I'm like, what? She goes, I have breast cancer. And we literally cracked up because, of course you do. Like, you know, what else? And she is here with us? Yeah, she's great. She's amazing. She has a little girl that is the light of my life. There were a lot of moms at school. Uh, Not the school my children are in now. They were much younger. But there were, I want to say in my son's class, there were 75 students. And we weren't all breast cancer, but there was eight of us. And I remember one day, Jason and I were like, "What, what is happening? That's a lot. And then we crunched the numbers. And again, one of them did not have breast cancer. She had a, a different kind of cancer. But the numbers for breast cancer are one in eight. And when you break that down. Wow. One in eight. One in eight. When you put it like that, that 80 80 women that you know. 
Right. Yeah. Right. And I was the one. Yeah, that's hard. That's one thing that I do want to say to speak to that is my doctors told me that my self-exam literally saved my life. That had that grown more because it was already in my notes. It just it would have been a different treatment. It would have been a different story. Examine your breasts. Examine your breasts once every 30 days. Do it on the first of the month. Do it in the shower. Do it in bed. Look up how to do it. Be aware of what your breasts look like. Look at yourself in the mirror. My malignant breast, in retrospect, was a little bit larger than my non-malignant breast because the tumor was growing inside it. Be aware of what your skin looks like on your breasts, your nipples. I think most breasts are naturally a little, one is larger than the other. At least Correct. That's what I've always been told. So, yes. But in yours, that was a, a change a bit because there was something growing. It was. Okay. Are you open to people reaching out to you after this episode? I am. I absolutely am. I act as a mentor and support person to women undergoing treatment currently. But again, that's, you know, limited resources. I have have three right now. I mean, I could have 20. Is that through a program that you do? I do it through, well, I do it through my doctor's office, which is sort of more word of mouth. And then I do it through a place called Immerman Angels that matches you with women around the country who are undergoing, who are similar in age, similar prognosis, similar diagnosis. So they, you know, that I did a huge questionnaire before and then they, they match you with someone around the country and you could do email, phone, whatever. But that's an invaluable source if you're feeling isolated, if you I mean, unfortunately, but fortunately for me, I had a lot of friends who were survivors. I'll put links to all of that in the show notes, everyone, in case you want to check those out for yourself or for someone you love. You have a private account on Instagram, but I, with your permission, am going to tag you anyway so that people, if they want to reach out, talk to you or whatever, you are there on the Absolutely. Gram. Absolutely. I loved our conversation. I did too. I didn't cry as much as I thought I I would, which is good. You know, I have this like terrible affliction where I have conversations with people who have something hard to talk about and I always end up crying. It's so inappropriate. It's not. You know what? (laughs) No, don't talk to my friend that way. It's not inappropriate. (laughs) It's empathetic. You're very kind. You're very kind. But I did love talking to you so um thank you i love talking to you i always do you're one of my favorite people to talk to i've always said that well thank you for being on the show i know it's no small thing for you to be like very public and i love it so much so thank Thank you. you so much you're the best i'm laura tremaine and you've just listened to the 10 things to tell you podcast you can find the show notes and subscribe to episode emails at 10thingstotellyou.com slash podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. Remember, this is an interactive podcast. I have 10 things to tell you, and you have 10 things to tell. So take this topic to your journal or a friend or post on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. These episodes are meant to bring connection with others and ourselves 
and spark better conversations. Thanks for listening. Now go share something.